2: Last year, I went to Beijing, and Kaiser was supposed to join me for a live podcast uh, with Jane Perlez, and he couldn't make it because of flight complications. And I joked to the audience that uh, we'd promised them Simon and Garfunkel, but they only got art. And they laughed a little too hard at that. So now, if you were one of those people, now is your chance to actually have dinner with Kaiser Gore, uh, either in Beijing, if a suitable time when he's there can be found, or in New York City, somewhere in North Carolina, perhaps, and D.C., depending on exact arrangements. If you would like to win a dinner with Kaiser, you can find our raffle on subchina.com. And every day there's a link to it in our email newsletter. You could also have dinner with me, but um, I think Paul usually beats art.
3: Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynical Podcast, coming to you today from the 1990 Institute's Teacher Workshop in San Mateo, California. Let's hear you make a little noise, teachers. Yes. Yeah. Alright Alright This is gonna be fun The Cynical Podcast Is a weekly discussion Of current affairs In China Powered by SupChina SupChina is a fantastic way To keep on top Of the most important news From China each day through our daily email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and of course at the website subchina.com, it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I want to thank Sandra Pan, uh, Sandra Pan rather, uh, Monica Lee, Lucille Lee, and Grace Yu of the 1990 Institute for being so gracious as to invite us out here. I say us invite us out here because my podcast co-host Jeremy Goldcorn was originally invited to come out. Uh, as well, but he woke up yesterday with really bad strep throat and was unable to fly, so he is back home recuperating in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, he is no doubt very upset that he couldn't join me today because today's conversation features two of the true greats of American scholarship on China. Uh, joining us again. For a second live podcast with us is Susan Shirk, who is professor at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego, where she is also chair of the 21st Century China Center. Susan served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia during the Clinton administration, and she is the author of several influential books on China, including most notably *Fragile Superpower*, uh, which is a book I've been recommending to many people for many years now. Welcome back to Seneca, Susan.
0: Thanks. It's great to be with you, Kaiser, and we miss you, Jeremy.
3: Uh, Uh, We are also joined for the first time, and certainly I hope not the last time, by Stan Rosen, who is professor of political science at USC and an uncanny observer of the interplay between culture and politics in China. He is currently working on a book about China's soft power, uh, and we'll get into some of that. He's deeply knowledgeable about China's film industry and the Chinese push to invest in Hollywood. These are both topics that we will also cover as well. So Stan Rosen, great to have you on the show finally. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Uh, we, we've known each other for some time, just sort of... Oh, back to your graduate student days. Right, back when I was a graduate student. <laughs> <laughs> Am I embarrassing and short-lived uh, stint as a graduate student? Anyway, uh, we have... Uh, there's a whole lot of, of, of political uncertainty, I think, right now, it's fair to say, both here in the United States and, and in China. Um, here in the U.S., Trump's administration is still reeling from the slow drip of, of new Russia-related revelations, and, of course, the continued embarrassments uh, as he's trying to advance his own... Domestic agenda says six months into the administration now, uh, despite GOP control of both the Senate and the House. uh, Trump has not managed to push through one piece of major legislation. And of course, uh, an astonishing number of appointments still have yet to be made. The U.S. faces a very complex and fraught international environment, and somehow it still has a badly understaffed State Department. Uh, meanwhile, there is a major schism within Trump's inner circle. Trump himself seems to careen back and forth between these two sides, between the so-called globalists and the nationalists. And this is reflected perhaps nowhere more clearly than in his erratic and totally unpredictable dealings on Twitter and elsewhere uh, with China. So Beijing cannot have failed to notice this. Uh, Chinese political life itself, though, is in a period of of, of real uncertainty and anxiety as Beijing heads into the 19th Party Congress this fall. Uh, So much of what happens in China happens in a black box and maybe, you know, Zhongdanhai, the Chinese leadership compound, Uh, doesn't leak quite as badly as the White House, but even to the casual observer, it's pretty evident that the leadership is vexed uh, by lots of sub-Rosa strife that's happening. So today we're going to talk about how the U.S.-China relationship is shaping up uh, at this point in Trump's presidency, but we're also going to talk about much more. Uh, first, I want to remind our guests and really remind myself here uh, that the audience here today isn't made up of specialist China watchers. So let's make sure we don't go deep into the weeds with our discussion. Uh, no speculation about the likely fates of relatively obscure central committee members whose names nobody in the audience is going to remember or has ever heard before. And no throwing around all those acronyms, none of that inside baseball. OK, got it. All right. So let's spend a little time talking about uh, also what this audience, uh, an audience like this of educators, what they really ought to know about contemporary China, I mean, how best we can help equip them with the fundamentals to bring their knowledge up to speed so that they can in turn bring up a generation of young people who are really smart on China. I think it's important that we we tackle that. But let's start off, uh, and I'll turn to you first, Susan, with, with a, a, an overview of the U.S.-China relationship In the time since Trump took office, how would you characterize the Trump administration's handling of Beijing and conversely, Beijing's handling of the Trump administration?
0: Well, I'd say that U.S.-China relations are not as good as the Chinese leadership thinks they are, or not as bad as they could be, with a president as volatile and inexperienced as Donald Trump. And where they go from here is really questionable. The one thing the presidents did right when they met at Mar-a-Lago is agree that the greatest risk right now is the North Korean nuclear and missile threat. And so there was, they agreed to focus on that. But the Chinese side, the Chinese leadership hasn't really made a strategic shift to now see North Korea as a greater security threat to them, too. Uh, And so their response is still pretty half-hearted. It's just limited to the current Security Council sanctions. And so Trump is bound to be disappointed by the results.
3: He is, and, after all, very transactional. And so he doesn't feel like he's gotten uh, what he's asked for in the deal. Right. Uh,
0: uh, so I, I'd say that we're likely to see things get worse before they get better.
3: Stan, what about you? What do you think of, of the state of things six months in right now?
1: Well, I, I certainly would agree with uh, everything Susan has said. Um, there have been kind of shifts in what Trump had said during the campaign and even after he got into office, accepting the phone call from Tsai Yuen, the The president uh, president of Taiwan, Taiwan, uh, at at which point Sean has made comments at various times that uh, Donald Trump is as ignorant as a child, to use use one of the quotes. Um, But given what he had said during the campaign and even early on, in terms of trade issues, in terms of Taiwan and so on, I think China has realized that everything that that Donald Trump tweets is not what he's likely to do. (laughs) So uh, they're they're unclear as to what he may or may not do, and that's, that's kind of... One thing China doesn't like, I think, is uncertainty. There was even a debate, of course, during the campaign. Some Chinese experts in China said... Uh, they prefer Trump because we all hate Hillary Clinton. Uh, Other experts within China, and talking about the United States, said, uh, on the other hand, what China fears most is uncertainty in the relationship.
3: Better the devil you know, right? Yeah, they want to
1: control everything. Uh, They certainly do it domestically, and they want to control the international environment as China continues to rise, and we have the 19th Party Congress coming up. So the thing they fear even more uh, than Hillary Clinton is
3: uncertainty. So Susan, I I feel like, the consensus, at least among uh, most of the people who, who watch Chinese foreign policy, who I know, was that Xi Jinping had rather deftly handled Trump, at least initially, uh, at least into, you know, toward the end of April, after Mar-a-Lago. Uh, when did you sense that this was starting to shift? I mean, you, you, you now think, I think you, you now believe, you, you've just said that she probably overestimates uh, the, his effectiveness so far in dealing with Trump.
0: Yeah, well, I think uh, President Xi Jinping got a lot of credit domestically in China for psyching out Donald Trump very effectively, playing him uh, very effectively. I could go through all the things he did to play to Trump's personality. Yeah, I I think it
3: would be useful to talk about some of those. Okay, well, the first
0: thing he did was to order the censoring of all criticism of Donald Trump in the media, because he knows that Trump tends to get provoked by media. Really? So I had not heard. <laughs> yeah, that was the first thing he did. Uh, second thing is to, I don't know if it was the second thing, but one of the things he did was to design this 100-day discussion of economic issues, because he knows that our president likes to be able to declare quick victories. So they made that decision to do this 100-day trade and investment agenda, and then basically gave up things that had already been agreed to, mostly things that were not terribly costly to China. Beef exports. Yeah, beef. um, Rice now. Some auto things, which will help China once it sells autos in the United States. So that was in their own interests, and then thought this would be a great thing to do. We can talk a little bit about this last uh, trade discussion, which did not go so well because the U.S. side played it very poorly. Um, The other thing is meat in Mar-a-Lago where uh donald trump loves to entertain you know he's so comfortable there and they knew that that would make our president feel very comfortable there and then you know i gather that in the discussions about north korea and other things he taught donald trump all there is to know about the china north korea relationship (laughs) in about 10 minutes and Donald Trump tweeted his great appreciation for realizing how much more complicated it was than he had imagined. So anyway, he played it really well. But once the North Korea issue is no longer a focal point, I think that uh, things will deteriorate, as we saw in these trade talks, where the United States uh, pushed this trade deficit agenda focused on steel heavy industry, which is one that Peter Navarro and other of trade fundamentalists kind of are pushing within the administration. But China just said, no, we're not going to accept some hard export restraints on steel. And of course, there are many in the United States who don't agree with this either, because steel is an old industry in America. We have a lot of Trade issues that I think are much more important for jobs, for our competitiveness, and our uh, innovation related to the new industries in America. And yet, the Trump administration just didn't even really raise those issues. So, I'd say this is poor judgment and incompetence on the part of the administration, and uh, it's now left. A uh, attitude in the top reaches of China that there is a lot of uncertainty about what Trump will do in any given moment.
3: Part of that uncertainty seems to be generated by the fact that Trump is pulled in two very different directions by apparently these two factions that I mentioned uh, within the, the inner circle of the leadership. One of them is probably best represented by Steve Bannon, uh, the, the sort of nationalist America first crowd. I see Susan shaking her head in in what I take to be disgust.
0: No, no, no. I just think it's more complicated. <laughs>
3: it is. It is. But let's let's then let's unpack that a little bit. Uh, the other, uh, perhaps, is you know the adults in the room, as they like to say, uh, Tillerson, perhaps, but also Mattis and McMaster. Although he may not be in favor anymore, even Jared Kushner, uh, hardly an adult, but but somebody who's in the sort of globalist faction. Now, is that too simple? Is that the way that Beijing understands it? Is that too? Simple?
0: I don't know how Beijing understands it, but I think there are some inexperienced people like Jared Kushner, who have a lot of influence and uh, led to a overly deferential, soft treatment of China at a moment when the U.S. actually had tremendous amount of leverage. I mean, my main objection to the approach of the administration is that they haven't really been strategic and focusing on the very real concerns we have about uh, lack of reciprocity in our economic relationship, about some very important security issues, not just North Korea, but led by North Korea, and they just gave up. Uh, a lot of good opportunities. Tiller Tiller said now, Susan Thornton is a highly respected... Let's ID her really quickly. She was a guest
3: on our show. But Susan Thornton is the acting assistant secretary of state for East Asia and Pacific. She is a career diplomat, uh, very highly regarded. But now it does not look like Trump wants to confirm her as the actual... Assistant, Deputy, uh, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia.
0: Right. Is- so, I mean, it's one thing to say people who signed a petition criticizing me in the campaign are not eligible for top jobs in the administration. It's another thing to say that a professional diplomat who's done a superb job, uh, should not be considered to be assistant secretary. As assistant secretary positions in the State Department, I know from my own experience, are a combination of some political appointees who've done other things outside in their lives, you know, and uh, uh, professional uh, foreign service officers. And to Refused to appoint a highly competent Foreign Service officer into a position like that is unprecedented. Her predecessor was a Foreign Service officer. So um, it just shows that really this is, this administration, sad to say, is kind of an insurgency coming into Washington, trying to uh, take over the reins of power and destroy. The uh, professionals within government, Uh, they see it as anti-establishment, but I think it's a very dangerous uh, approach, especially with people who really don't have the experience and the competence to govern.
3: Stan, is there anything that the Trump administration has gotten right so far when it comes to China? (laughs)
1: Well, let me, before I, I answer that, let me just follow up with what Susan sure, said, absolutely. if I can, because um, in terms of China, we don't, China's very opaque. We don't really know what they're thinking in terms of the leadership. But I think speculating, based on the knowledge we have, it seems that they have figured out, or think they have figured out, that Donald Trump cares most about personal relationships. He likes to talk about his close ties, even when they aren't close ties, close ties to other leaders, how he can make a deal with anyone. He even talked about that in terms of North Korea at one point with Kim Jong-un. He emphasizes personal loyalty. He, as Hillary Clinton said during the campaign, when she said the one thing good about Donald Trump was his family and the way he treats his family. And China has picked that up. So they cultivate Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, uh, and you can see a lot of ways they've done that with... with uh, emoluments. <laughs> yeah, no, emoluments and, and, and basically uh, detaining labor organizers in, in factories where Ivanka, trunked, Ivanka Trump... Right, are was we invested- all aware of
3: this story? That's a very interesting one. Ivanka Trump manufactures some of her clothing in China. Labor activists were investigating whether she was violating the, that company. The manufacturer was in violation of Chinese labor laws. And those activists were, what do you know, detained. Yeah. So uh,
1: basically uh, supporting Trump's economic interests and so on. But in terms of what they've gotten right, I I think, as Susan has suggested, they've kind of pulled back uh, from some of the early missteps in terms of Taiwan, for example, where Donald, aside from the phone call issue, where, where President Trump at one point seemed to hold out Taiwan as a bargaining chip. You basically uh, give me something I want on trade, and you can have Taiwan. Well, he didn't say that directly, but that was kind of an implication that everything is negotiable. Right. And he, I think uh, he's been, quote-unquote, educated in a sense. Uh, so he realizes it's, again, much more complicated uh, than simply trading a so-called asset, Taiwan, which is not really an asset of ours, but okay. to make a deal on something else which will promote American jobs. So I think he's backed off on a lot of some of in partly maybe because Xi Jinping educated him, as, you, as Susan has said, in terms of things like South Korean history even, <laughs> other, other things like that. So in some ways... Yeah, um,
3: added 3,000 years to the Chinese history. Yeah, that's right. Um, 8,000 years apparently.
1: So he's learned what not to do rather than having done something in an active way. He's learned to step back from
3: big missteps okay Susan what about you would you do you chalk up any any uh, anything in the in the plus column for for the Trump administration its handling of China thus far I'll take that long pause as a no
0: (laughs) (laughs) well identifying the North Korean threat but I don't think the way we're going at it is going to succeed
3: and we will talk about that, about different ideas about how to approach it. But Stan, it strikes yeah. me that the Trump administration, with its whole America first slogan, its very cavalier willingness to offend even some of our closest allies and its total abdication of the U.S.'s role in the world, really, um, this has all left a really huge opening for Chinese soft power, right. to pursue the kind of soft power that arguably has eluded it in, in, in the past. Is China taking advantage of this opportunity, and, and what is the low-hanging fruit uh, that China might be able to, to grab in this in this period?
1: Well, that's a very good question uh, in terms of just the utility of soft power is, is a good question. What did soft power, if, assuming you have
3: it, actually get you in terms of foreign policy? Maybe achievement? we can start there, because I think you have a very different idea of what soft power is than how um, maybe it's traditionally been defined.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, without getting into too much detail, uh, when Joseph Nye coined the term uh, soft power, he was really looking at... The difference between hard power, which is military power, economic coercion, for example, uh, how you can use your attractiveness as a nation to get people to do, influence people, other nations particularly, to do what you would want them to do without coercing them in some way, forcing them. And it was based on things like universal values, based on a nation's foreign policy, based on your culture, the attractiveness of your culture, the attractiveness of of your political system. and and so on. And the U.S. scored very highly, and China's not having a belief in universal values, for example, and having a more authoritarian political system did not score very highly on soft power. Now, with the retreat of the United States, uh, in a sense, and and I think the, the single most important misstep, and I think Susan would agree with this, would be unilateral withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And you may want to explain that to the
3: audience. The TPP, you've all heard about this. This is a big talking point during the campaign. And to be fair, the Clinton campaign also indicated that they would be withdrawing from TPP. Uh, This was something that had been championed by the Obama administration. And it was really, uh, it was a Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership that included 14 countries that uh, excluded China. Uh, China, of course, bristled about this, believing that it was. But we have to remember, I mean, Uh, the former uh, Defense Secretary, uh, Ash Carter, actually said that TPP would have been more valuable to him than another aircraft carrier. Uh, This is something that...
0: But the door was always open to China. We never said that China couldn't join. And actually, those of us hoping that Hillary Clinton would win the presidency envisioned, many of us, envisioned a process by which, in fact, we would have TPP, and then we would try to bring China into it. And many in China actually hope to see that happen as well.
3: So connect this for yep. me, though, Stan. Yep. You say that the, this trade pact, or our or withdrawal, or withdrawal yep. from the trade pact, uh, was had a negative impact on, on American soft power. Yes. How does that work?
1: Well, because uh, other countries whether it's Japan or Vietnam, other countries that were re- relying on, on TPP and had made concessions to try and get approval of TPP in the United States, uh, were left hanging. No. Um, and it made it look like American credibility, American interest, the so-called pivot or the rebalance to Asia, was, the whole thing was being called into question. And it made China's uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank the One Belt, One Road initiative seemed to be the only game in town. Uh, as in, and, and so that the Regional
3: Comprehensive Economic Partnership yeah, also. Yeah, uh,
1: that's right. And, and so it looked like America w- was withdrawing. And I would agree with Susan. I think the Clinton campaign realized, based on public opinion and the way it was being sold, uh, TPP was not a winning strategy, but they, I think, always held out the possibility
3: that it could be renegotiated. So let me let uh, yeah. me shout out a couple of of things that yeah. I, where I think maybe there were low hanging fruit opportunities or where I, I sense that. Anytime time uh, there was a story in the media that, for example, talked about China taking the lead and not, you know, making a, big, a very big point of not withdrawing from Paris, in fact, doubling down their commitments to Paris about uh, investing very heavily, making large announcements about investments in renewables and setting very aggressive targets for renewables in the energy mix, all these things got it some very, very good press. Uh, and then... Infrastructure investment projects in Central Asia, like the the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, got well mixed, but outside of the United States anyway, uh, some very, very positive press. Uh, And then probably most significantly was just Xi Jinping's overall commitment to taking up the banner of economic globalization in the aftermath of of, of Trump and Brexit. So let's talk about these things and, and whether Beijing has successfully made any hay with this.
0: Well, I love the messaging. I love the commitment to public goods, mutual benefit. Uh, The Chinese leadership has really framed its global initiatives in a very positive way. And I think uh, there's a political scientist at or political economist now at Beijing University named Wang Zhou, who's been talking about this for a decade. And, uh, you know, so I believe that China's ambition is here to stay. And if they can put it into this kind of positive agenda, and really deliver on that positive agenda, then this is unobjectionable. And uh, we should be competing on the same playing field, frankly, it's a whole lot better than arms races, so uh you know, I think they've done a very effective job. They've tried not to overplay their hand so that it would look directly like trying to humiliate the United States too obviously. but you know, I think the messaging was great. I was in Beijing this spring teaching for two months at the Schwarzman Scholar Program at Tsinghua University during the uh, extravaganza for One Belt, One Road.
3: The Belt and Road Forum.
0: Right, and it was really uh, excessive and over the top, and definitely within China, this is being treated as a political ideological campaign, Uh, and I think that aspect of it reminds us uh, that this is a communist party that knows how to do political ideological campaigns. And there are plenty of critics inside China, by the way, who, who just like Americans don't like foreign aid and we think that we're spending all this money on foreign aid. It's actually a, a, a drop. Um, and think, well, we have so many things we want to do domestically. There are plenty of people in China who think this effort is grandiose, wasteful spending money that should be spent inside China. But the fact of the matter is the messaging itself and what it's trying to signify about China being a responsible power and wanting to work with other countries, not just for its own benefit, if they can deliver on it by actions at the World Trade Organization, by what they actually do with the recipients of these construction projects. Um, uh, and then the big question mark is if at the same time they're becoming more repressive at home, does it matter?
3: Right. And we'll talk about that too. But before, we, while we're on the subject of soft power, another area where China has made inroads um, with mixed success has been in the area of film, the Chinese film industry, specifically, it's actually a Chinese investment in Hollywood. We have gigantic companies like Wang Jianlin's Wanda Group, Dalian Wanda, uh, which had bought AMC theaters and is investing heavily in productions. It's rare now that you go see a Hollywood blockbuster where in the credits at the beginning, you don't see the name of a Chinese company uh, that has invested in it. Uh, Legendary, all, all sorts of other... Uh, f- groups now. What's, what's your sense of, of this as a strategy? And to what extent are Chinese companies meeting with kind of, of, of pushback from the United States, either from Congress or from sort of uh, the civil society in America at, at large? Uh, very good
1: question. Um, Wang Jianlin and Wanda is a very special case, especially in terms of pushback, because he's facing push, pushback within China, as well as in the United States. Uh, it was very, I, I wrote a piece about him earlier in the year about uh, how he, what he says in China, what he says outside China, completely different. In, inside China, he's calling for less regulation of his company. Um, he's, call, he's saying, I'm the only one who can carry the torch for soft power for China. State-owned enterprises can't do it. The government can't do it. Uh, when he goes outside, he talks about American jobs. He's creating all these American jobs. Um, he's got a lot of enemies in, in both sides. What was very striking to me, just taking Wang Jianlin as an example... The China's richest man, by the way. Very now second. Jack Ma has passed him again. Oh, it goes okay, back okay. and forth. That's, that's, but but uh, what's striking to me, the letter from the um, 16 congresspeople and Chuck Schumer in the Senate, uh, the one na- when they talked about uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, Cepheus. They have to look much more closely at culture in terms of national security considerations. The one name they mentioned was Wanda in in those letters. Every every one of those letters mentioned Wanda. He had become a liability uh, to China, I think, the Chinese leadership, which has, as Susan has mentioned, has talked about—it's kind of striking at Davos, the Economic Forum, how Xi Jinping was a defender of globalization. Uh, China is extremely protectionist, but it made it seem like they were the defender of globalization. So what Wang Jianlin, uh, unlike Jack Ma, for example, at Alibaba, what Wang Jianlin has been doing is um, becoming the poster boy for an aggressive, assertive China. When he he talked about uh, Disney, uh, the Disney tiger moving into Shanghai, facing a pack of wolves with all of the Wanda theme parks which have now been sold, of course. Um, he was calling attention to aggressive China, not a peaceful rise of China. So that he he had to be disciplined domestically, in addition to all his overleveraging of loans and so on. Uh, so his days in Hollywood are over, or at least he himself has admitted his investments are now going to be within China. Uh, so that's that's an extreme case, but that's 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 the one case where He had political problems as well as economic problems. Now, Jack Ma has been much more quiet. He speaks English fluently. Um, He has a lot of connections in the United States and in Hollywood. He has gone about his messaging in, in a much quieter way and much more successful. But I think we'll continue to see a lot of investment, Chinese investment in Hollywood. But what China really would like to see would be Chinese films succeeding in the United States in the same way Hollywood films succeed in China. And related to soft power, one quick point on that, if I may, because it also relates to some of the negatives and why it's difficult for China to succeed in soft power. You can mention, you look at Liu Xiaobo, for example, and his death and, and, and his liver cancer and so on. Front page news, every edi- every newspaper has an editorial on it, big picture in The Economist. Uh, that really impinges. Uh, it does matter. Uh, but if you look at the film industry, the head of... of Publicity or propaganda for the Chinese Central Committee has said, we're in a war with Hollywood. We have to defeat them domestically by taking 55, 60% of the domestic market, but also succeed with them internationally and get the U.S. market in some way, the same way we allow Hollywood into China. But in the next sentence, he says, and of course, all our films have to have socialist core values. Well, if you have socialist core values in your films, you don't succeed either domestically or internationally. And that political requirement political criterion, really hinders any soft power development.
3: Absolutely. I've always said the first rule of soft power is don't talk about soft power.
0: (laughs) I have a t-shirt with that. Right.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy, would it be even a bit anti-Semitic to point out that your beard is now looking almost rabbinical?
2: Well, coming from you, maybe. But I have to say my my, uh, father and uncle, who, unlike me, have Jewish mothers and therefore actually Jewish... Both said I look like a rabbi, so uh, if they could say it, I I think you're okay. Uh, Honorary Jew
3: that I am. Okay. Uh, Anyway, I see evidence of deliberate shaping going on, and that's a fair sight better than it was last time I saw you. I'm going to assume that that has something to do with a certain orange-handled grooming device that you now possess. It does
2: indeed. It does indeed. I had lost my razor, and just that's why I started growing a beard, but Harry's sent us to the rescue. Peace to
3: the rescue. Beautiful
2: <laughs> orange razors.
3: I am loving mine. Uh, it's it's keeping everything nice and neat. Uh, on a recent road trip I had with Fanfan and the kids, every time Johnny caught sight of a flash of orange, he'd start urging me to shave the whole damn thing off. But, you know, I, 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 I have made peace with the fact that I'm never going to grow out this, like, full, luscious Lord Guan length beard. But hopefully... I can at least have the respectable facial hair of a minor warlord of the Three Kingdoms, period.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, dear listeners, get a great shave at a fair price, like the over three million guys who have already switched over to Harry's from their expensive... Corporate razors.
3: <laughs> Claim your free trial offer from Harry's today. It's a $13 value for free. When you sign up, you need only to cover shipping. In my case, I was like 3 bucks. So
2: That includes a weighted razor with five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and the little trimmer blade on
3: top that Kaiser likes so much. Yes, I do like that little trimmer slip. But you also get some rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover.
2: To get your free trial... Just go to harrys.com slash subchina. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S
3: dot com slash subchina right now. Hey, and uh, thanks very much. And now back to the show. You know, I think anyone in the audience who were talking, just playing on on, on what Stan just said about Liu Xiaobo, uh, the Chinese dissident who, of course, died uh, shortly after being paroled, on medical parole from from a prison in Shenyang uh, for fourth stage liver cancer, uh, he is one of, of of a number of I think of of pieces of evidence It would it'd be hard not for any anyone who's been paying it you know half half, half an eye uh, open and and looking at China part of a, a real illiberal turn uh, I think we it's not just domestically it's not just the crackdowns on human rights lawyers it's not just the the strangling of the Chinese internet it's not just these things but it's also uh, a more sort of aggressive posture uh, in. Places like the South China Sea, where China has built a number of built up a number of, of artificial islands that are now um, militarized in some cases. It's in its disputes over the Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands with Japan. It's in uh, this current standoff right now in Bhutan with India. We, we've seen a, a number of, uh, and this really got started, I think. Um, you know, or around about the year 2008. I think many of you in the audience might not know uh, that it's not just something that began during the Xi Jinping era. Uh, you could make a case that started a little even earlier or a little later than 2008, but 2008 is maybe where most people have focused. Now, prior to that, I think many people were very optimistic. It may be surprising to some of you about where China was headed in in the years before. I think... Um, integration into the global economy, the deepening engagement between uh, China and the United States at a cultural level, a lot of these things had produced, I think, what many of us as Americans would see as very good results in an expanded civil society, more NGOs being more active, including uh, foreign-funded non-governmental organizations, in expanding public sphere where the conversation was quite freewheeling, especially online on the then burgeoning social media, a lot of loosening of cultural strictures, blossoming of a lot of media outlets. What happened? This is, I think, something that for people in the audience here, this is something you really need to understand to understand modern China today. What happened to send China into onto this current illiberal path? Will it last? Is this a blip? Is this another three steps forward, two steps back? So I, I've talked about this before with Susan. Maybe you should, should start. And uh, again, cautioning you not to, to go too much into the weeds, but to help our audience to understand why you think this happened.
0: Well, I think it's a extremely important question. And for social scientists academics it's a a big intellectual puzzle i mean it may seem obvious people would say oh well it's the global financial crisis the global fina- i mean what what changed in 2008 what changed is that we had a global financial crisis it was caused by the failures of the american financial regulation system so it was our systems that failed and it triggered this you know, panic and crisis, uh, liquidity crises all over the world because our financial system is now so integrated. China's financial system was not so integrated. It was not hit as hard and it recovered faster than anybody. Big and
3: stimulus, b-
0: thanks to a massive government stimulus, just investment, pouring investment through banks, through state owned enterprises, government. Into the economy, so uh, as a result, people in China started seeing the U.S. as uh, less capable, a uh, weaker, not as strong a nation, and their own country. There was this kind of triumphalism. Okay, now China has really reached the point where no more Mr. Nice Guy. We now we'd like a a more assertive foreign policy, and uh, so China's leaders also and its political elite also experienced that. So I think that is really the main reason, and the U.S. talk about soft power, the respect for America, American system went down, and that's true in America, too. We had a real crisis of confidence in our own system, and nowadays I think that's even more acute. So I think that's the main reason. But there were other things going on, too, that aggravated this. And it has a lot to do with the way China made decisions uh, under the last administration. The President Hu Jintao, Premier Wen Jiabao, their system, they were actually trying to make collective leadership work. They were trying to improve governance, uh, including responsiveness to the public, including A more civil service type system with a more meritocratic selection of officials, Mm -hmm. less based on political loyalty and ideology. It was to try to modernize China's authoritarian governance. So I think they were serious about this. But the result was a weaker leadership and all these bureaucratic systems going off on their own. And that was meant more corruption. And it also meant more overreaching in terms of foreign policy, especially with the maritime territorial disputes in the South China Sea, and more overreaching in terms of domestic security controls. So the repressiveness actually started around the time of the Olympics, before the global financial crisis, actually. So uh, with the Tibet protests and Xinjiang protests.
3: So Tibet was in March of 2008, right?
0: Right. And the growing role of the state in the economy, the what you might call industrial policy, protectionism, building up indigenous innovation, that actually, for national security purposes and objectives, that begins in 2006. Right. So there are domestic factors. You know, in my book, Fragile Superpower, I always try to look at how domestic politics drives Chinese foreign policy. So international factors like the global financial crisis are important, but those domestic factors were also important.
3: Stan, what would you add to that
1: well, I certainly would agree with the global financial uh, crisis being a, a major factor, and it's, it's kind of a process. It doesn't happen all at once. For example, looking at soft power, uh, it really took off after 2011. Uh, Hu Jintao made a major speech in October 2011, which was published in Chosher, a leading magazine, ideological magazine, in January 2012, in which he talked about the need for intensive investment in this area, because it's the Western media that is so powerful and determines what, we, what everybody in the world sees and believes, we have to have an impact. So that, that began really in 2011 to take off. But there was the satisfaction, certainly by 2008, if not earlier, with the who-won leadership uh, being soft. And you could see that in the Chinese media because Vladimir Putin began to be praised, very openly praised. And, and uh, as time went on after 2008, even at, uh, Global Times, other kind of nationalistic newspapers were saying, why is Putin the most powerful person in the world? Xi Jinping, he didn't, they didn't say Xi Jinping, of course, by name. They said, we're stronger. China's stronger. Why, why are we basically, again, they didn't use this term, but we're walking like women with bound feet. We should be more powerful. We have to be more assertive. And Putin is incredibly popular in China. You have women uh, writing in to magazines saying, he's the man I want to marry. Strong strong leadership. So there was a call for, uh, after the drift, I think, of the won years, call for a strong leader. And this goes back to previous studies I've done way back on neo-authoritarianism, uh, where even the most liberal people, friends of mine like Dai Ching, were calling for a strong man in China. In those days, of course, it was a Zhao Ziyang, a leader that could break through the conservative bureaucratic opposition. But that desire for a strong leader is very powerful in China. And it particularly began developing during the drift of the who-won years where corruption was so obvious. And so
3: all of this, I think, is part of that. It was kind of a process over time. So let's move now to the forthcoming party congress. And this is, again, an area where it would be very easy to get too much into the weeds. Uh, In in October or November of of this year, we're going to have uh, the major party conclave. Typically, new up-and-coming leaders are anointed typically in these sort of off-year ones, so they're, they're held every five years. In every 10 years, a new leader is actually anointed. But in that, that middle one, the, like we're having this year, they give a very clear idea of who is going to be coming up. This year looks to be very different. Can, can either of you explain why this party congress has so many people paying such close attention and trying to read the tea leaves?
0: Well... I'll take that on because I'm really fascinated by Chinese leadership politics, especially during this era of reform in the post-Mao era, where Deng Xiaoping, who was China's leader starting in 1978-79, of the same generation as Mao Zedong, but he's the one who really Uh, opened up China to the world and initiated its economic reform. And he also initiated a kind of political reform in China to try to keep the Chinese Communist Party in power by institutionalizing its political competition, institutionalizing the system, so that it was more predictable so that leaders didn't just stay there until they died or were overthrown, and so that the leadership could remain cohesive. And so he put in age limit, uh, retirement ages, and term limits. But on the party side, on the Communist Party side, these were not written down. But precedent under subsequent leaders, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and now Xi Jinping— have created certain norms and expectations for how this is going to play out. And as you point out, this is China's midterm. And what should happen now is that there should be one or two younger leaders who who go up to the top in the Politburo Standing Committee who are clearly anointed to be Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang's successors. And it looks like that may not happen. If it doesn't happen, then there'll be tremendous uncertainty for the next five years, unbounded competition, and uh, worries that Xi Jinping is trying to turn himself into a leader like Mao Zedong, who remained for more than two terms. Uh, now, again, this is not written down. The term limits are not written down. but. Expectations and norms are pretty clear.
3: Are you reasonably sure that this is something that will happen or is it to you still something very much up in the air?
0: Well, oh, you want to answer no. that? No, go go go. I mean, I think um, up until a, a few weeks ago, I thought that if I'm Xi Jinping, I'm going to have a normal succession now because even if five years from now, I want to change things, why signal five years ahead and make people so suspicious of you and therefore create a backlash among the other members of the party elite? It's pretty risky. You're setting yourself up with a target on your back if you don't put things in place for a smooth succession. But with the purge of Sun Jung Tsai, who is the party secretary of Chongqing Mm -hmm. and was a Politburo member who was one of the two younger leaders who were put in the Politburo, presumably to get him ready to move up to be the next generation leaders of China. It didn't have to happen that way, but there were some expectations that's what would happen. The fact that he has now been Purged, meaning he's been picked up by the Party Discipline Commission, charged with corruption, and you know this is very unusual for it's actually it's the first sitting Politburo member who's been targeted this way. So it creates some uncertainty about whether or not Xi Jinping intends to have a normal transition here, a normal succession in midterm, or is going to try to set himself up as a strongman dictator, really, for the future.
3: That's an awful lot at stake. Um, uh, there's a lot more to talk about with regard to that, but I do want to move to the topic of, of North Korea, if that's okay. Uh, no, Stan, I was going to add one. I want to hear o- what you
1: that. Only that... Um, it looks like, as Susan suggested, the 19th Party Congress is becoming more predictable. And it's the next one, 2022, that people are going to be watching closely, whether she is staying on. Is there anybody in the wings? Because what we're saying with the Sun Zhang uh, Tsai situation in Chongqing, it seems very clear, what, even what's appearing in the press now, it's, it's not corruption. It's because he couldn't clean up, uh, supposedly couldn't clean up Chongqing. Uh, he was being too cautious. Even though he declared loyalty and fealty to, to Xi Jinping, it wasn't enough. So other names, which I won't go into because I don't want to go into the weeds, but other people who have not yet been purged, who are also part of the so-called next generation, mention Xi Jinping maybe 26 times in a speech they give, and he maybe he only did it 13 times. Uh, it's, the lo- it's like a Donald Trump in a sense. Yes. It's the loyalty to the leader, again going back to the days of Mao Zedong, and, and now there's even Xi Jinping-ism being talked about, Xi jinping thought being talked about. So there is going back, in a sense, and, and Sun Zhengchai was in the wrong place at the wrong time, as somebody said, basically. Uh, Bo Lai is still very popular, the previous leader in, in Chongqing, who's now serving a life term in prison, and he was very cautious in, 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 uh, Sun, in Chongqing, what he did, Uh, And that's being used against him. But it's really the fact that, as Susan suggested, it looks like Xi Jinping doesn't want anyone who will be considered to be the next leader until he decides what to do uh, for 2022.
0: Which is really dangerous uh, for China's stability because this leadership succession is the Achilles' heel of authoritarian regimes. And it was a great achievement for China to put in place... These Three procedures uh, for a smooth leadership yep. transition. So I want to take
3: a couple of questions uh, from the audience here. So we have one here. What do you think American journalists covering China can teach American journalists covering Trump? Ah, that's interesting. They both have to endure these press conferences where no information is com- is forthcoming and stonewalling, and they um, they're they're both dealing with these sort of increasingly authoritarian. Uh, regimes that that hate the Western press. So, <laughs> anyone do you want. To well, think
1: about I, uh, Donald Trump uh, likes to talk about fake news. Um, China edits out, censors all the quote unquote fake news from their point of view. So, um, there's some parallel I think there in, in the sense that Trump only entertains those kinds of questions from journalists that serve his own agenda. Um, and the Chinese, of course, do the same kind of thing. So um, I'm not sure that uh, American journalists need to be educated by the journalists uh, working in China because
3: they're already learning from Trump uh, how China operates. <laughs> it's the other way around, right? The covering the White House is good preparation now for going to... Time has gotten away from us. There is one thing that I do want to ask the both of you. We'll have to skip this conversation on North Korea and maybe we'll save it for next time. But... Um, Stan, I, I think that something that many teachers would like to have mm-hmm. in their back pocket is a nice, compelling way to articulate to their students why it's so vitally important that young Americans get exposure to China—that this country on the other side of the world. Let's let's think about this really. What are what are some good ways that we can just sort of sell the idea of the importance of studying China?
1: Well, if you if you all you have to do is read the newspapers uh, every day or see that The Economist. A few years ago, for the first time, added China as a separate section to The Economist magazine. It hadn't been done since 1942 when the U.S. had been added as a separate section. China's no longer part of the Asia section. Uh, so I think it's being recognized, uh, and I think teachers generally understand that part of the problem, and I don't know enough about I've taken maybe 13. Fulbright delegations of high school teachers to China for the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. So I've gotten to know a little bit about the curriculum and, and, and what teachers are teaching, but it's still, based on my lectures to high schools in different parts of the country, it still seems to be very, very Europe-centric when it comes to uh, history, studying history and so on. But we now talk about not the G20, but the G2, China and the United States. A new type of great power relationship is what the Chinese are, have been pushing for a number of years. Um, But um, given Chinese investments here in the United States, not just Hollywood, but in other industries as well, and given the importance, people made a joke uh, when Donald Trump was running. They put together these clips where he said, China, China, China. You may have seen that on YouTube. China, 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 China. China, China, (laughs) China. China, China. So I I think the message is is actually getting across
3: uh, about the importance of China. So I mean, we both potentially I mean, we we've, we've all taught undergraduates before. I know that I, I certainly have. What, what do you what do you sense in terms of of the kind of baseline knowledge that uh, they're coming to you with when when they start an, under, an undergraduate uh, or so a lower division course at the university? What are they coming in with in terms of their their high school level uh, knowledge of China? I think it's, it's relatively low.
1: And I always ask my Chinese politics, I don't know if Susan does this, I always ask my Chinese politics classes at the beginning of, of the semester, uh, when you think of China, what do you think at? And the reason I do that, I work on public opinion and survey research in China. And when you look at, at, at the surveys in China, when they think about the, U- the U.S., what do you think about? Hollywood is number one. They know about the Pentagon. They know about Wall Street, Coca-Cola, you know, McDonald's, McDonald's. Um, uh, Apple computers. Well, when you think about China, what do you think about? You tend to think about things like the Great Wall. You tend to think about conf- maybe Confucius, some of the ancient things. Or if it's anything modern, it's the Chinese economy. But you don't think about Chinese brand names, Chinese national competitive companies. So I think there's, there's, there's a very limited knowledge. Now, I'll give you one quick example because I always mention this to my students. This goes back quite a number of years, but I don't, I don't think it's changed all that much. It's not just China, though. It's, it's the world in general. i give you a lot of examples. But they asked about, uh, Washington Post did a survey years ago uh, about Japan. And they asked, when you think of, of, of Japan, um, this goes back maybe 30 years, uh, but, but it, it's still indicative. When you think of Japan, what person living or dead uh, is the person that you most think of with Japan? Well, number one was okay, it was Emperor Hirohito. And that was Second World War and so on. But number two was Bruce Lee, <laughs> who certainly is not Japanese. And number three was Godzilla, who is not really a person. Uh, and if you asked about China, uh, it'd be interesting to see uh, who they think about. Maybe Confucius might come up.
3: Emperor Hirohito and Godzilla. <laughs> yeah,
1: China, yeah, they they could say anything. Yeah, a lot of people don't know uh, the difference between, let's say, China, Japan, or even Korea. Right. Uh, that's that's the real. Lack of knowledge, and I guess the teachers here know much better than I. And I may be way off base now, and maybe the knowledge is much higher. Maybe and of course, work people, cut out for you. yeah, no. people taking my Chinese politics class should know more than than the average high school student.
3: Okay, I'm, we need to move on 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 to recommendations. And then we'll take some questions, but. Uh, uh, I need to read this really quickly uh, before we get to recommendations. I want to remind our listeners that the Cynica podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash News. If you like the Cynica podcast, by all means, go leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really helps. And now on to recommendations. Susan, why don't you start us off? What do you have for us?
0: Well, first of all, check out the UC San Diego 21st Century China Center uh, site where we have uh, a lot of interesting blog posts and you can learn more about us at china.ucsd.edu, little promotion for our uh, great China Center. But uh, a book that I'm reading right now is Julian Barnes's book, The Noise of Time, written from the standpoint of Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich. And it's about what it is like to be an artist living through the era of uh, Stalin. How odd, Stan.
3: We were just talking about this this morning on the way over here. It is a really great book about
0: the the conscience, how an individual artist, tries to maintain his conscience in a uh, communist, repressive communist setting. And, uh, of course, I'm also thinking about Leo Xiaobo and all right. the artists in China.
3: How How is it? I mean, what a strange coincidence, huh? Yeah. We, 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 were, yeah. we were talking about Shostakovich. Well, I love moment. Shostakovich. Yeah. And yeah. actually, one of my recommendations was going to be uh, for another Eastern European composer, but... Let's let Prokofiev the, know that. Right, no. So no. let's get let's, let's well, started. Yeah. Excellent recommendation.
1: A couple of qu- very quick things. One, uh, if you're interested in Shostakovich, you should read Testament or yeah. even see the film, which uh, I'm a big lover of Shostakovich, or so his symphonies and everything. I don't want to get into that, but Kaiser and I have talked about that earlier. I have to say, though, uh, since Susan has given a plug, I have to give a plug to Clay and his U.S. China Institute, which also has a website, and Susan knows this very well. Yes. Uh, I don't know if Clay brought, brought any of our publicity, propaganda uh, with him, but you should. we have a website with a lot of, lot of information. What I might give for recommendations, since I teach film classes, uh, as well as political science, a couple of Chinese films. One film is called To Live, a uh, Zhang Yimou oh, film, uh, based on a Yuhua novel. And I always, when I show the film, I compare the novel to the film. The novel is much tougher than the film. It's been toned down a bit. It's still a great film from 1994. Cool film, which is a very harsh, of course, banned in China, but tells you a lot about real cases, four cases in Chinese society, which were reported on the internet, and two other films, which which are kind of comedies, but because they were so successful in China and don't really travel abroad, I would mention The Mermaid, Stephen Chow's film, (laughs) which made 526 million U.S. dollars in China by far couple hundred million dollars almost, the most popular film ever marketed in China, more than any Hollywood film, The Mermaid, played in the U.S., made three million, uh, and lost in Thailand, which is like The Hangover uh, without all the raunchiness. Um, You know, you take a film like Tiny Times, which is like Sex in the City without the sex, you can see why Chinese films don't travel abroad, because (laughs) we have the same kind of things here, but a little more edgy. But I, w- I would recommend a number of films. i will be happy to talk to anybody afterwards in terms of uh, recommendations from,
3: or send you my syllabus for my Chinese film class if you're interested. Well, great. Okay, for my recommendation, those are very good recommendations and, and some excellent films. Uh, I was going to recommend the Czech composer Antonin Dvořák, who's been an uh-huh. obsession of mine recently, uh, especially the Seventh and Eighth Symphonies. You're probably familiar with the Ninth, the New World. But let me give a more germane recommendation. The excellent California newsletter by our good friend uh, Matt Sheehan, who you heard from this morning. I think more than anyone else, he is chronicling the relationship at the state level to China, whether it's Silicon Valley, uh, its technology, Hollywood and its films, or Napa and its wines. Uh, Matt's newsletter is is a great roundup of this stuff. Uh, You can subscribe to it. It's free uh, and very relevant, I think, to your lives. Stan Rosen, Susan Shirk, thank you both so much for, for for coming to join us. Let's hear a good round of applause for these two. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo, me, and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks also to Adla Chang and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com or visit our Facebook page, which is now merged with the SubChina Facebook page, which is Facebook.com slash SubChina News. Follow us on Twitter. Also merged now at Seneca Podcast is now at SubChina News. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care. Okay.